Well, good evening to you all. You're all very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and the Spirit of Inquiry. And the subtitle is that an unexamined life is not worth living. This is something that Socrates said and believed in. Now, tonight we're going to be very brave. We're going to push the boat out and just see how far we can go. But ultimately, it will be in your questions and not in the talk itself where we will meet the true spirit of inquiry. And this is the real purpose of the meeting tonight, your questions. So, are you ready? Well, our first question is, why the spirit of inquiry? Why bother having the spirit of inquiry? Well, if you are perfectly happy as you are, if your life is free from error, if you have found what you're looking for, if you are master of your life, then there is no need for the spirit of inquiry. But if there is folly in the life, and if there is misery in the life, then let there be the spirit of inquiry. And Marsilio Ficino, who is said to be the philosophical father of the Italian Renaissance, he wrote three letters on the folly and misery of men. And in order not to depress you, I'm not going to read all three, but I'm going to read part of one. And let's see if we can recognize any of what he says in our own lives. Mortal men ask God for good things every day but they never pray that they may make good use of them. They want fortune to wait upon their desires, but they are not concerned that desire should wait upon reason. They would like all their household furniture down to the least article to be made as beautiful as possible, but they are hardly ever concerned that the soul should become beautiful. They diligently seek out remedies for bodily diseases, but neglect the diseases of the soul. They think they can be at peace with others, yet they continually wage war with themselves. They believe that they can find themselves a faithful friend in others, but not one of them keeps faith with himself. What they have praised, they reject. What they have desired, they do not want, and contrarywise. They lay out the parts of buildings to a measure and tune strings on a lyre to a hair's breadth, but they never attempt to harmonize the parts and movements of the soul. They make stones into the likeness of living men, and they make living men into stones. They despise wise men themselves, but they honor the statues and names of the wise. They claim to know about everyone else's affairs, although they do not know about their own. Although they always speak evil, they hope to be well spoken of themselves. Although they do evil, they hope to receive good. We proclaim that we are the authors of good, 
but that God is the author of evil. We blame our faults on the stars. Everyone believes that he abounds in wisdom, but is short of money. What a sorry state. We seek the greatest in the least, the high and the low, good in evil, rest in activity, peace in dissension, plenty in penury, in short, life in death. So, if folly and misery in any way applies to ourselves, then it will continue to operate till our death, unless we question it, examine it, and resolve it. So our questions are, is there folly and misery in our life? Why is this so? Does it have to be this way? And how may it go? Now, luckily for us, man feels the urge for the eternal, for the infinite, vague though it may be. And this urge is innate in him, and he cannot rest till it is satisfied. There is a difference, however, between the search of the worldly man and the search of the spiritual man. And it is this difference which makes all the difference. The worldly man seeks God or truth unknowingly and wrongly. And the spiritual man seeks God or truth knowingly and by the right methods. So how are we to seek knowingly and by the right methods? How does real inquiry begin? Well, we need to think that there is more to life. Not more money or more pleasure, but more. That life is more substantial, more meaningful. If we do not think there is more, then there will be no inquiry. The Shankaracharya, the man that the school put all its questions to, he once said, in the worldly setup, people go to work and get their wages. The wages are used to buy goods they need. Goods are bought and used for pleasure. But pleasure is not the same as the peace of the self or contentment in liberation. Wages, goods, and derived pleasures do not ultimately bring in the peace of the self. And thus follows the inquiry into philosophy. So if there's not true inquiry, then as the Shankaracharya says, people become involved in the money they earn, the goods they possess, or the type of pleasure at which they aim, and so miss the ultimate aim of the peace of the self. Now, life started off open and full of potentiality. But often life then becomes familiar, full of prejudged patterns. That is the way I am. This is how my life is. 
the ruts get deeper and deeper. We might notice how unbelievably rigid people can become in their old age. Life starts with real questioning, the real questions of the child. Then it moves to distraction from its true purpose. Then to extra effort and a struggle to get more out of it than it is currently yielding. And then resignation. This is the way it is. And then death. Now it does not have to be this way. It is not that we have too little. It is that we are travelling along a wrong road that will not lead us to where we wish to go. When we realise this, we will stop we will inquire, where am I? Where do I really want to go? Will a continuation of this take me there? And if no, what will allow me to fulfill my life? And as said before, thus follows the inquiry into philosophy. So, how can I awaken the spirit of inquiry in me? And there are four aspects to this. The first thing is to examine all the assumed knowledge which governs our lives. Like, I'm only human. And this basically means that I'm limited, have faults, and neither you nor I should expect too much of me or more from me. Or we cannot expect to be happy all the time. Because happiness is dependent on external circumstances. And external circumstances are not always benign. Or birth is wonderful and death is terrible. Has anybody come back to tell you? Or that youth is better than old age? or that wealth is better than poverty, or everybody's truth is equal, or it's good to get angry at times, that grief is natural, that stress is a part of life. All these assumptions and then the most serious assumed knowledge of all, that I am this body, mind and heart. And therefore I am subject to birth and death, to ill health, to pleasure and pain, to clarity and confusion, to joy and sorrow, that I am dependent on others, I am separate from others, that I'm changing, limited, bound, restless, consisting of good and evil. And this most serious assumed knowledge we'll return to later. The second aspect of awakening the spirit of inquiry in us 
is to ask the real questions and really ask the questions. Verify in practice, in ordinary, everyday life, what is the truth? What are the answers to these questions? So can one be totally honest? Is it possible and practical to love unconditionally? What is the purpose of human life? Why was I born? Do I have any particular role to play? What is a human being? What is my birthright? Who or what am I? Is there spirit or soul or whatever we wish to call it? Is there an afterlife? Is happiness inherent or acquired? And when there is no past and there is no future, who am I? And these are not questions to be looked at once. They are live questions. They give us a life worth living. They are fuel for the life. They make it interesting to wake up in the morning. They provide for the incredible journey of self-discovery. Now we all had these questions or variations on these questions. So what has happened to them? Do we pursue them every day and in every way? Did we get the answers? When do we expect to get the answers? Did we just give up? Have we concluded it is all a mystery and beyond us? And these questions may be abandoned, but they cannot be silenced. And the third aspect of awakening the spirit of inquiry in me is through reading scriptures and the words of the wise and the lives of the wise. The words of scripture, the wise and their lives inspire and they provoke questions. So if I just take some examples from the Christian tradition, which we're probably most familiar with. Jesus said, to resist, not evil. We spent our whole day resisting it. And his instruction was not to resist it. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. It's not possible to hear these words and for there not to be millions and millions of questions in the mind. What would it mean for me to be perfect? Where is this kingdom of heaven within me? Why don't I know it? 
these words of the wise or scriptures, they challenge the assumed basis of our existence. Most of us get up in the morning and try to survive the day. We're not aiming at perfection. And the fourth and last means to awaken the spirit of inquiry in us is to keep company with those who have been making real inquiry. Again, the Shankaracharya said, when people have undertaken this work for a period of time, there will be something special about them. They will have acquired strength of character, of knowledge and of being. Wherever they go and whatever they do, their actions will not only inspire others, but will necessitate others to find out what makes them different. Thus they inspire and they awaken questions. And they can then explain how systematic knowledge and simple practice can change one's life for the better. So find someone who inspires you who awakens questions in you, who can direct you to real answers by pointing to the truth. Now, what hinders the spirit of inquiry in us? And there are many factors, and I've just taken a few, but the first is fear. Fear of leaving the known leaving what appears to be certain for the as yet unascertained. Fear that we are far greater than we have ever imagined. Fear that with knowledge comes responsibility, that we might just have to live a great life. The second factor which hinders the spirit of inquiry is our conclusions. The belief that what I already know is true. Everything is met in the light of the previously held conclusions. People and events are interpreted to support the existing knowledge. That which is in agreement is welcomed. That which contradicts is either feared, resisted, ridiculed, rejected, or deemed impractical. And the third factor is treasuring one's own little world. Again, as the Shankaracharya says, he treasures it, for he knows not the real treasure, and establishes a little circle only to protect it. Unless the true knowledge is made available to transcend this circle, he keeps on changing the form and pattern within the little circle and gets as much pleasure as he can in this jugglery of individuality. And the fourth factor which hinders the spirit of inquiry is an unwillingness to commit oneself. Everybody has the questions, but the real inquirer does not stop 
until the whole of his being is satisfied. The mundane man also has the questions, but is too busy with his worldly affairs. And Plato put this very nicely in the Republic. He says, At present, the students of philosophy are quite young, beginning when they are hardly past childhood. They devote only the time saved from money-making and housekeeping to such pursuits. And even those of them who are reputed to have most of the philosophic spirit, when they come within sight of the great difficulty of the subject, I mean dialectic, take themselves off. In later life, when invited by someone else, they may perhaps go and hear a lecture, maybe even one like this. And about this they make much ado, for philosophy is not considered by them to be their proper business. At last, when they grow old, in most cases they are extinguished, more truly than Heraclitus's son, inasmuch as they never light up again. So what personal qualities are required for there to be true and substantial inquiry? And the first and foremost quality or virtue that is necessary is humility. We must be like Socrates, who said that the wisdom of man is worth little or nothing, or I know nothing at all. We clear our minds of all cannots, preconceived notions and a priori notions. So the first requirement for a true and substantial inquiry is to empty yourself of all that you do know. The second factor is faith. We need to believe that there are answers to our questions, that they can be answered and that they can be understood. And this is not blind faith, so there is not acceptance, nor is there rejection. Simply the willingness to investigate carefully, to decide correctly, having verified in practice and to follow faithfully what we've come to understand to be true. And the faith that is required is, as St. Paul said, the faith that is born of understanding, i.e. faith supported by reason and experience. And the third factor that is necessary for there to be a true and substantial inquiry is determination. Again, the Shankaracharya said of this, he said, the great temple of Badaranath is situated in the Himalayas at an altitude of 12,000 feet. If people start their journey and get tired after 10 miles or so, they can't give up or lose interest. They simply keep going and surmounting all difficulties, they climb all mountains and reach the temple. 
The greatest thing is the knowledge of the temple. The rest is a little toil every day and patience. All succeed who keep going and no one is heard of giving up. Any idea of defeat is against the honor of the self and should never be entertained. So on the path to true knowledge, despondency is forbidden for the true inquirer. Doubt is not entertained, but dissolved. And this determination requires that all questions be asked, that nothing is left unresolved, or else the mind can never be at peace. And it cannot be just an intellectual inquiry. It must be with the whole of one's life. It is not for the satisfaction of one's intellect, but for the satisfaction of one's being. And this satisfaction arises with the experience of the highest knowledge, where this knowledge becomes understanding. So for this to happen, there must be humility, faith, and determination. Now what could we say is the spirit of inquiry? It is to approach every moment of life with an open mind and an open heart. We do not set out to confirm what we already know. Also, we do not sit down to the task of inquiry to find out what we would like to find there, but to find out what is actually there. And there are three ways of approaching any situation, and only one reflects the spirit of inquiry. And these are in relation to discussion or examination. The first type of person is the destroyer. He is not interested in the truth of the situation. He simply attempts to destroy the argument of the other without offering anything constructive himself. He uses sarcasm or cynicism or simply denounces the other's viewpoint with statements like rubbish. The second type is the converter type. And he does not really listen to the other participant as he's not particularly interested in their viewpoint. He simply wants to convert everybody to his viewpoint which he often passionately adheres to as true. He does not easily drop his point of view, even when flaws in his argument become evident. He tends to keep making the same point over and over again until he gets the other person to agree, i.e. he's converted them. And he will rely on cleverness of argument rather than the truth of the situation. Now, we obviously don't know anybody like this. But the third type is the inquirer. Here, the participant does not have a fixed point of view. His interest is the truth of the situation. 
he offers his own viewpoint and is equally interested in the viewpoints of others as they may lead him to the truth. He only rests when he has got to the truth of the matter. He does not mind being proven wrong and he considers himself as having gained by being relieved of ignorance. So when you point out to him that he's been talking complete and utter rubbish for the previous 30 minutes, he thanks you. You probably don't know anybody like that either. He is the real participant in inquiry. Now the first two, the destroyer and the converter, are stuck. The first is stuck in negativity and the second is stuck in convictions, just like a convict. Only the third can grow in understanding. So, what is real inquiry or the mature inquiry? Well, this is the pursuit of the question, who am I? The only real inquiry in life is, who am I? Now, the ordinary assumption is that I am a body-mind amalgam, or a body-mind-heart amalgam. And this is not inquired into, but is accepted as true. Being accepted as true, it is the point from which life is viewed. Everything is seen or experienced in the context of this unexamined assumption. This identity, who I think I am, does not really inquire. It has a point of view on everything. and Everything is seen to confirm its existing point of view. It spends its time holding a position and it freezes everything according to its current understanding. With the true spirit of inquiry, there is no past and there's no future. Ordinarily, we move from the past to the future and the future to the past. However, only in the present can there be true inquiry. We think we are Tom Ryan or John Smith or Mary Murphy. In fact, we know we are Tom Ryan. Everything is met and seen through Tom Ryan. Tom Ryan wants to be loved, to be secure, to be noticed, valued, and so on. And whether the response is positive or negative is all related to this belief as to who I am. And as said before, the belief remains unexamined except in a cursory or perfunctory sort of way. At its best, this examination seeks to rearrange the furniture of its life all to suit its views rather than question the very basis of its existence. And with this belief in who I am, Life is lived in a state of restriction, restricted to the belief, our own personal prison cell.
We are someone with a history, with possessions, with an image to project and hold on to. And in this state, our life is one of constant expectation. We listen with anticipation. Everything is judged and interpreted, compared and justified according to this identity of mine. Everything we say is memory. We speak what we think, not what is actually experienced. And we have a personal relationship with everything and everybody. So our relationships are from personality to personality, from object to object, and not from self to self. Our problems only exist when we establish a personal relationship with the people and events of life, because it is the person who reacts and the person who resists life. And the need is to stop having a personal relationship with everything. It is all a point of view based on erroneous knowledge. The person, the one who I think I am, is cooked up by the mind. It can only exist in the waking state of the mind. And this identity is always grasping, always asking for more, because it is always hungry for fulfillment. Its only experience is a feeling of incompleteness. It is always demanding from others, demanding love and recognition. And it is a life of gaining and losing, a life of ever becoming and never being. And we are constantly projecting this image of ourselves, this personality on the world. Basically, we afflict the world with our imagined existence. One of the great sages of the last century, a man called Nisargadatta Maharaj, a disciple or an inquirer asked him, what happens when truth dawns? And Nisargadatta didn't answer, so the man pursued the question over and over again. What happens when truth dawns? when inquiry is fulfilled. And Nisargadatta eventually answered, when truth dawns, the world is rid of a great nuisance, i.e. you. So what is there to do? Well, in truth, there's nothing to do and nowhere to go. The spirit of inquiry brings us on an apparent journey to where we are now. At the beginning of the inquiry, we simply discover what we are not. And we keep discovering what we are not. And one day we stand in the presence of ourselves, who we are in truth, who we have always been, who we are now, but simply do not realize it. 
The spirit of inquiry is not to take us somewhere new. It is to bring us into the now, to allow us to wake up to what is present here now. Who am I is ultimately not a mind question. There is a need to move away from this thinking factory of ours. Who am I does this. The final truth is not understood by the mind. The ultimate understanding is beyond the mind. To be in the present is to give up our imagined identity. We do it while asleep, every night. We give up everything. Now we simply have to give up everything while awake. Thus there is no intention, no goal, no destination, just letting go. And with the spirit of inquiry, we wake up to our real nature. This is the real awakening. What we call awake is not awake. But living in the dream of our life, inquiry brings us to the moment when we really see, when we really live, and when everything is observed as it really is. In real inquiry, we do not just ask the question, who am I? We live with the question, who am I? We stop living with the known and start living with the question, the unknown. So the spirit of inquiry brings us not to knowing, but to not knowing. It never allows the dream of my life to take over. Thus there will be no doer, no thinker, no sufferer, no enjoyer, no Tom Ryan. In this question, there is no reference to anything. The answer, if there can be said to be an answer, does not close things down. It doesn't conclude. There's no conclusion to the question, who am I? What was closed down, what was concluded, is now dissolved. And it leaves us in total openness. The known can never bring us to the unknown. And to reach the unknown, the mind must come to an end. It must turn back. And when the mind sees its limits, then it stops functioning. So I'm sure all of us have been out at night on a clear night. And sometimes you look up and you say, God, there's a lot of stars in the sky. And the mind says, I wonder are there thousands? And then you think, that's not enough. There must be millions. And then you realize that's not enough either. So you go to billions. And then you go to trillions. And then you go to zillions. And then you fall quiet. 
It's only when the mind gives up, when it can't go any further, that you really begin to know. It is then that the true knowledge arises. In truth, the pursuit of the question, who am I, does not give us an answer. It simply eliminates the question. So what is the need? Well, the need is to be in the present moment. And then there is listening without a listener. And there is seeing without a seer. And when listening in the present, there is no memory. And one is free from all the furniture in the mind. There is complete openness, no grasping, no taking, no concluding. Who we think we are is absent. And there's just total presence. The presence of our real self. Then there is the real inquiry. Then there are no borders. And there's no center. We stopped living in our heads. The person has ceased to be. There is freedom from relationships and relating. And everything is seen as it is and not as it relates to us. Without this ego, we see the facts. Here the true knowledge of the all arises. There's a need to remain in the present. In the moment of happiness, there is no I. No ego. There's only happiness. Only afterwards do we say, I was happy. But we cannot have happiness. We can only be happy. We cannot have understanding. It's a matter of being the understanding. We cannot have love. We can only be love. And we cannot find ourselves, we can only be ourselves. To say, I am happy, is to turn it into a state. To make happiness into an object. What is required is to find the unity, where there is no object and there is no subject. There just is. Now Jesus said, except ye be as little children, ye shall in no wise enter therein. Now a child has the spirit of inquiry. It lives in constant discovery. When is the last time we discovered anything? Anything worth telling anybody else about? When were we last surprised by life? The child inquires, free of an image of itself. And we inquire in relation to an image of ourself. Attention needs to be free of anticipation and expectation. 
It needs to be innocent attention. The attention of the child. Attention without knowing. Our thinking is rational or calculative. It starts in the known. It starts in thought. The real creative thinking starts in the unknown. It starts in silence. Ordinarily, our looking involves choosing and accepting or rejecting. Our looking is not innocent, so nothing is discovered. Our living is not innocent, so we do not discover life. We should be like the child, observing without qualifying, observing without knowing. So where will this real inquiry lead us? Well, we can never find out who we are. We can only find out who we are not. We cannot find anything about ourselves because the seeker is the sought. We are not an object to be discovered. We cannot observe observing. All that is known is an object. And we cannot be objectified because we are the knower. Without the spirit of inquiry, we must remain with the known. The spirit of inquiry does not lead to the fullness of the known. It leads you beyond. It ends in defeat of the mind. It ends in silence. So do not stay in the comfort zone of the already known. When you have looked everywhere for yourself and you give up, then the true knowledge arises. Then you remain in all your glory and it is known to be true. If we take ourselves for someone, there will be location and there will be time. But the search is for the limitless, for that which is beyond space and beyond time. As the Shankaracharya says, in the limitless or in the experience of the limitless, where and why is there a need to stop? So do not grasp understanding. Stay open. Inquiry does not lead to a destination or to a conclusion. It eliminates the inquirer and thus all goals and destinations. Socrates had the spirit of inquiry. He was a real example of the true inquirer. And when he was being tried on false charges, this is part of what he said. He knew he was facing death, but it made no difference. This is what he said. If you say to me, so he directs this to his accusers, if you say to me, Socrates, this time we will not mind Anitus, who was one of his accusers, and you shall be let off, but upon one condition, that you are not to inquire and speculate in this way any more. 
and that if you are caught doing so again, you shall die. If this was the condition on which you let me go, I should reply, Men of Athens, I honor and love you, but I shall obey God rather than you, and while I have life and strength, I shall never cease from the practice and teaching of philosophy, exhorting anyone whom I meet, and saying to him after my manner, You, my friend, a citizen of the great and mighty and wise city of Athens, are you not ashamed of heaping up the greatest amount of money and honor and reputation, and caring so little about wisdom and truth and the greatest improvement of the soul, which you never regard or heed at all. And if the person with whom I am arguing says, yes, but I do care, then I do not leave him or let him go at once, but I proceed to interrogate and examine and cross-examine. And if I think that he has no virtue in him, but only says that he has, I reproach him with undervaluing the greater and overvaluing the less. At the end he says, Wherefore, O men of Athens, I say to you, do as Anitus bids or not as Anitus bids, and either acquit me or not. But whichever you do, understand that I shall never alter my ways, even if I have to die many times. So you can see that the spirit of inquiry, the real spirit of inquiry, takes dedication. And it takes courage, but it creates a man whom 2,500 years after his death, people all over the world will study his words. So what is the life of inquiry like? Well, it is the most wonderful journey that man can make. Life can never become stale. Because one is always open to that which is greater, more expansive, truer, more complete, to that which is ever unfolding, to that which knows no limits. It is to be not trapped by past actions. It is to be free of old hurts and unresolved issues. It is to be spontaneous liberal, free of guilt and regret. It is full of adventure, divine recklessness, welcoming the unknown and meeting life unguarded. It is a willingness to participate fully, to grow, to forgo what is erroneous but held dear, to drop limits, to be, to live in the now. It is confidence in yourself and it is being true to yourself. And every day you wake up to new and fresh mornings of life. So to conclude, if there's not complete peace in your life, then inquire. If there's not total happiness in your life, then inquire. If there's not rest and freedom and love and understanding, if life does not have real meaning, if it does not yield full satisfaction,
standing choir. Do not fall asleep to the goal of life and be, as it says in the Matnawi, this is a quotation, he has the work who has become desirous of good and for that work's sake is not identified with any other work. The rest are like children playing these few days till the departure at nightfall. When any drowsy one awakes and springs up, him the nurse imagination beguiled, saying, Go to sleep, my darling, for I will not let anyone disturb thy slumber. But you, if you are wise, will tear up your slumber by the roots like the thirsty man who heard the sound of running water. So inquire with humility, faith, determination, patience, enthusiasm, and love. Truth will not come to you. You must seek it. And in the words of Jesus, seek and ye shall find, and ye shall find the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Thank you very much. So, if you wish to ask a question, and I hope you have plenty, then if you put up your hand. And you can ask them one at a time. <laughs> Uh, what happens to one if they don't inquire? If you don't inquire, then you're simply stuck with what you know. And then? Then death comes eventually. <laughs> Your life would simply become repetitive. For example, let's say, when you were learning to drive, you asked lots of questions. And you asked, well, what do I do here and what do I do there? and you were given answers, and then you tried to apply those answers and see whether they were verifiable or not. And because you asked your questions and you took the answers and you put them into practice, your skill at driving increased. What ordinarily happens, though, is that after a while we think, I know how to drive. So there are no more questions. And so you repeat your level of or skill of driving for the rest of your life. And that's what tends to happen to life. It starts off with lots and lots of questions. And there's a tremendous openness. So children, when they're very young, they're willing to be mummies or daddies when they're older. It makes no difference. They're willing to be firemen and astronauts and all sorts of things. By the time they get to 16, they're down to being a mechanical engineer or something appalling like that. <laughs> and then they live out that. They live out that knowledge. This is what I am. So... Without inquiry, you are bound to repeat what you know, to live under your knowledge. So you're trapped. You have your prison cell of your own knowledge. People have that. They think the purpose of life is marriage or children or clearing a mortgage or leaving a mortgage, perhaps. But does it not come to a point where everybody inquires? Everybody is forced to inquire because 
man is not satisfied with anything less than full satisfaction. So he's driven on. But he can, given that life normally only lasts 80 or 90 or 100 years, he can be driven on to keep experimenting on the wrong road. So he can think, well, my full satisfaction lies in my money. It's just that I don't have enough of it. So I work a little bit hard and I get more. And what happens is everything becomes more sophisticated and more complicated. So the idea of going for a walk along Dunleary Pier is replaced by scuba diving off the coast of Ecuador. Right? <laughs> and, I mean, who would go for a walk along Dunleary Pier to be happy with themselves? So it all becomes very sophisticated and complicated and extremely expensive. In the end, your tastes become dulled. It's like very, very, very fancy chocolates. You really only can take one or two at a time. After that, you're just shoveling. It's too excessive, and it dulls the taste. So this is what happens to people. It dulls their taste for life. But they won't be able to rest. However, some people in a frenzy just drive faster down the wrong road. And the thing to do is to stop and make an inquiry. Now, let's say one had come to the conclusion, my happiness lies in money. Well, look at people who have lots and lots and lots of it. And have they found happiness? And if you find that there's a universal connection between vast lumps of money and happiness, well then, you're obviously on the right road. But there doesn't seem to be that connection. So that should indicate to one that there is no connection between happiness and the amount of money. And in the end, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for happiness. You can use happiness or rest or freedom or... It doesn't make any difference which word, but there's a nice story told about a fisherman and his crew, and they go out fishing in the morning, and they come back in, with, and they sell all their fish, and they turn the boat upside down. They're resting. They're lying against the back of the boat, and the sun's beating down on them. And a very busy businessman who's taking his walk, having eaten his sandwich for lunch, now walking along the beach, and he comes across them, and he says... Why don't you go back out? There are more fish in the sea. And the captain says, why? And he says, because then you would have more money. And the captain says, but what would I do then? He said, well, then you could buy a second boat, and you could hire a second crew, and they could go out fishing, and you could take the surplus. And the captain says, and what then? He says, well, then you could buy a whole fleet of boats. You could have lots and lots of people working for you, and they'd be generating lots of money for you. And the captain says, and what then? He says, well, then you could buy lots and lots of things. And the captain says, and what then? He says, and then you could rest. The captain says, but I'm already resting. <laughs> so the purpose of it all is to find this rest. And it's a very ironic thing, but all our activity is for the purpose of rest, to find that peace. And to think that you can find peace or rest in activity really is unbelievable. Now, some people think that they will find rest at the end of the activity. You know, I'll sell my soul for ten years and then I'll rest forever. But if you don't know how to rest, and you've made all the money, 
the mind will be restless as you idle away on that beach or whatever it is. You have to know how to rest. Again, this analogy has been used before. We like to get things out of the way so we can rest. So we like to get the washing up done. Now I'm happy type of thing. But if you watch the child, the child is happy during the washing up and at the end of it. We're only so-called happy at the end of it. And the thing is to find that rest which is independent of activity or non-activity, is independent of wealth or no wealth. It's independent, full stop. But every one of us will be forced to continue to search. And the only question is, will we search in the right place and in the right way or not? So that's it. Yes? Why should I know who I am? Why should you know who you are? Not say the way I am, let's say. Do others say that? Let's say. All right. Okay. Well, let's say I gave you a blog dollar and I say, a blog dollar love. And I say to you, I want you to make full use of it. What would you say to me? You would say to me, you don't know what a blog dollar love is, and you cannot possibly make full use of it unless you do know what it is. Now, it's a making-up words, and you needn't torture yourself. <laughs> you don't have to go back and dig out the Oxford Dictionary and work out what it is. If you don't know what something is, you cannot make full use of it. In fact, you can only abuse it. So you'll find this if you leave your tools around and the children get at them. They don't use your tools, they abuse them. They shorten their lives, they make the witches of blunt, etc., etc. If you don't know who you are, you cannot possibly use your life. If you don't know what man is for, you know, it's very obvious that dogs are for guarding and things like this, and sheep are for wool. What's man for? A bit of procreation, mortgage clearing. <laughs> Is that it? So you need to know. If you want to make full use of anything, you need to know what it is, and you also need to know the rules and regulations behind it, or else it ends up in chaos. So again, you take something like a board game, and the board game has rules. And the purpose of the rules is not to restrict the play, but to allow the play. Now, children normally, when they get the board game, they just want to throw the dice and move the little plastic things around the place. But normally what the parent does is, no, we need to understand the rules. And if people can understand the rules, and they obey the rules, then they can get full satisfaction from whatever this board game offers. But what you'll notice is, having explained the rules, and you leave the room, within five or ten minutes there's a scream from within the room, and there's accusations of cheating and all sorts of things like this. So what you find is, is when the rules are forgotten, or there is cheating, then you get misery and chaos. Now, all the great scriptures say that this creation is for bliss, that it's an act of love, so that all may enjoy bliss. But that we seem to be doing a lot of screaming, 
a lot of claims, it's unfair what's happening to me, all sorts of things like this. Maybe we don't know the rules, or maybe we do know some of the rules, but we're not obeying them. So it's essential to know who I am. And then it's essential to know the rules of this game. We don't like them very much anymore, these rules. Let's see if I can find it now. You know, we think that, say, love thy neighbor as thyself is a suggestion. It's not, it's a law. And whether you agree with it or not, you are bound by it. So whether you agree with the law of gravity or not makes no difference. If you jump off that cliff, you're going to splatter at the bottom. Your lack of belief in the law of gravity will have no effect. <laughs> your lack of belief, let's say you don't believe in love thy neighbor as thyself, you say, I don't believe that rubbish. It doesn't make any difference. It has its effect. If you think you are your body, that's what you see yourself as, then you will see everybody else as a body. You'll see them as young and old and good-looking and ugly. And you'll see yourself as young or old or good-looking as ugly. You'll see yourself as a decaying entity <coughs> whose only future is arthritis and sucking orange juice. Right? Things like that. But if somebody gives you a law to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, what the man in the Bible asked, well, who's my neighbor? But a much better question is, who is myself? So that I may know how to love. And who is your neighbor? Well, again, here it says, love your enemies. So obviously your enemies are your neighbors. Bless them that curse you. That ever cross your mind? When's the last time you blessed someone that cursed you? Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Can you imagine what an amazing man or woman you would be if you could manage that? Any fool can love nice people. It doesn't take anything to be nice to nice people. But what about loving your enemy? Imagine what greatness there would be within you if you could manage that. So, when Jesus gave instruction to love your enemies, this wasn't because Jesus was very fond of enemies. He was very fond of you. So that you could enjoy greatness while alive. That's the short and snappy answer. <laughs> yes, there's a gentleman here. Yeah, do we have a purpose? Absolutely. To discover this. To discover who am I. That is the purpose of human life. It is not meant to be just a series of activities. As I said to you, you know, whenever you're given something new, what you do is you try to understand it. So if you're given a DVD player or something like that, you get out the instruction booklet. You say, what are its functions? What is its capacity? What can it do? What should it not do? What use can I get from this? Well, now you are given a life. 
And, okay, unfortunately, you didn't have the gift of speech and you didn't have full control of your body or anything like this. So what you did for the first couple of years, you looked at other people. You looked at those you loved. And because you loved them, you imitated them. So if you happened to be born into a family that hated housework, well, then you said, this is obviously the wise thing to do, so you hated it as well. And rain... Rain is not something to be enjoyed. You have to learn that one. Because you used to love the rain. And then you had to learn how to grieve. First time you went to a funeral, you made a complete show of yourself, running around happily, <laughs> kicking the leaves and saying, can I throw a bit of dirt in there as well? But then people taught you how to grieve, how to be miserable. <laughs> if those around you are perfectly happy if they are free men and women then imitate them and if they're not then inquire into how they live their lives so the purpose of man I just take it from the Christian tradition you can take it a million different ways is to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect The human life is not a comfort zone. You're meant to give everything. Absolutely everything. You know the story of the talents from the Bible? The man who was given one talent, and the man who was given two, and the man who was given five. And the man who was given five, he turned it into ten. And he was rewarded for that. If he had turned it into nine, he would have been cursed. Because if you have five, you must turn it into ten. And if you have two, you must turn it into four. And if you have one, you must turn it into two. But if you just hide your talent, well, then you take the elevator down. It's like, you know, I always think it's an amazing question. You ask people, are you perfectly happy? And they say, no, there's a little bit further to go. And you say to them, when do you expect to be happy? doesn't make a difference what age they are. They always say a few years' time. <laughs> and if you asked the 85-year-old when he was 25, he would have said in a few years' time. But he's still saying a few years' time at age 85. So when's it going to happen? Are we going to have to keep coming to these dreaded talks? Yes, there is a man over there. You, you, you did have answer that at the end. Uh, my question was going to be, when do you ever get there? Do you ever get to the stage if you start on this spirit of inquiry? Yes. Is it, is it a journey, a continuum, that a little bit further along the spirit of inquiry road is better than halfway along, three quarters of the way along, but every, every day is better than the previous day? Or, or is, there a, is there a destination? Or do you, in your previous one, do you keep going as fast as you can and you know, take, it out, <laughs> take it as it It's often referred to as a journey, but that's a bit of an illusion. The truth of the matter is, you are who you are. The question is, who am I? Not who will I be, or who am I trying to be? The great philosophical question is, who am I? That means right now. Who am I now? But because we don't know or we have an image of myself, 
So let's say we read some words of some sage, and the sage says, you're perfect. Somebody like Jesus says, you're perfect. So you do a bit of self-analysis, and you say, I can't find the perfection here, so I need to do things. So you set off on a journey. But in a way, you're missing the point. Again, I'm just going to take it from Jesus, but take it from many sources. But he didn't say, become perfect. He said, be perfect. That gives you no time. It means, be perfect. You know the way you say to a child, be quiet? You're not saying to the child, now, over the next 30 minutes, just reduce the volume. <laughs> right? Yeah. The error that's made is that we have forgotten who we are. But nature abhors a vacuum, so we think we are this body, mind, and heart. And it apparently has all sorts of defects and limitations like that, yet sages appear to say that I'm perfect, and there's also an innate desire in me for full satisfaction. So I go about improving myself. That's the desire. So I try to get rid of my anger and my jealousy and my envy and... I try to understand things. But in a way, it's all an illusion. Because you've got to find out who you are, and then you see whether there's any work required. A lot of the rules that you talk about come from scriptures, Bible, whatever. Are you saying that if you don't believe in, a, in an almighty being of some description, that you'll never find happiness, you'll never find who you really are? No. Belief is not essential. True belief is not a disadvantage. If you believe in the wrong thing, that is a disadvantage. If you believe in something which is true, that is an advantage. But it's not necessary. So, let's say you wish to come to my house. And you believe in me. You have faith in me. You think that, I, that I'm going to tell you the truth about how to get there. This is not necessarily true now, but let's just say you have faith in me. And I give you the directions. I say, you proceed along, blah, 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 and then you turn left and right, and then you come to the house, and that's where I live. And you're most welcome. And you believe in me. Because of your belief in me, you will travel at quite a speed. And the journey will actually be very enjoyable. Your faith in me means that fear will not arise and doubt will not arise, and you'll be just following faithfully whatever directions I gave you. Now, let's say you have no faith in me then you'll be stopping every five minutes and wondering, and saying, actually, that could be a shortcut. <laughs> right? That cul-de-sac looks like it's got possibilities. <laughs> the marvellous thing about faith, if it is well-based faith, is that it allows you to move at speed. If you don't have faith, you have to move quite slowly. But you can move. It depends on your own nature. So man albeit he is one, he has different variations on the theme. So there are some people who are very devoted by nature. And because they are devoted by nature, they find it very easy to have faith in others. And that's fine, and that's what they do. And then there are others who don't have an awful lot of devotion, but they're very strong on reason. And they say, I want to know for myself. But they move much more slowly. St. Thomas would be an example. He couldn't accept the words of others. You know how he died, St. Thomas? Do you know how he died? I don't know. 
just to <laughs> encourage you. He was speared to death by a prince or king in India. You see, he needed to put his hand in where the spear was. <laughs> so, watch out for men with spears. <laughs> if you can find somebody, and I don't mean blindly now, if you can find somebody that you can have faith in, well then, the so-called progress can be much more rapid. If not, you're on your own steam. But you cannot persuade a reasoning being to have faith. It's a miserable journey for them. They can't do it. And the person who's full of faith, you can't slow them down. You can't say, look, let's examine this. They say, no, we're going. And they're off. So everybody according to their nature. If one wants to be a religious man, then the question is, is there a God? And if there's a God, what is my relationship to him, so-called? And that suits devoted people. If one is a reasoning being, then the question is, who am I? And then the direction is more philosophy than religion. What's wrong with being Liz's husband and Lindsay's father? As far as I'm concerned, that's my wife and my daughter. And as far as I'm concerned, I am, say, a father and a husband. I do get fulfillment out of that. All right. Well, that's very encouraging. Do you drink? All right. When you're drinking, whatever you do, drink. Are you a husband and a father? Are you just a drinker? All right. Well, when you're walking down the street, do you walk in a sort of a husband sort of way? <laughs> no. All right. And when you're ordering a cup of coffee, do you order that in, in a sort of a married, fatherly sort of way? No. no. The interesting thing is this. The vast majority of the time, you're not husband and you're not father. If you're you know, football fan, there is no wife <laughs> and there are no children. There's just me and the team. You'll find, even though we say these things, I am husband, the reality is it really only comes into the mind when it's under threat or when it just enters the mind because the heart is open. You don't order a pint in any way different because you're married or you're single. It might help to determine the number of pints you order, but, <laughs> but, but, but not how you order it. So, for example, tonight, I'd say at one level, you can say I'm a married man and I'm a father, but there is no husband <coughs> operating right now and no father operating right now. Let's say we assume you're a happily married man. You say, well, one of the things that would encourage you to be a happily married man is the constancy of the relationship. It's not that she's there on a Monday and she's gone on a Tuesday and back on a Wednesday. Right? There's a constancy. But the role-playing of father and husband is not constant. Because I said, sometimes you're just walking and sometimes you're drinking and sometimes you're eating and sometimes you're talking. Imagine if you could find who you really are. That would be to discover the ultimate constancy. And when you don't know who you really are, then you see constancy everywhere.
You seek it in your relationships. You seek it in your possessions. You hire lawyers. You say, make sure I have 999 years left on this lease. I have a life expectancy of about 15 years, but I want a, a lease of 999 years. I want constancy of employment. If the firm goes, I want to make sure that there will be constancy of income from the social welfare system. So what we try to do is we try to find the constancy outside of ourselves. But the reality is everything outside of ourselves is changing. The whole creation is ever-changing. So you can't find any constancy. You can fool yourself into thinking that there is a constancy, but it's an ever-changing show. But who you really are is constant. That which was there when the body was the body of a baby, when the body was the body of a child, and the body of a youth, is still there now in the body of an adult. You've always been here, and everything's been changing around you. So. Yes, there's a gentleman here. Yeah, I'm not that when we finally come to the point where we found ourselves, we realize who we are. Can we then skip through the self help book section and listen to us, right? Absolutely. The marvelous thing is that when you discover who you really are, then you'll express it in absolutely everything you do. You'll become a remarkable person. Everything you do will be remarkable. The man who founded the School of Philosophy, Leon McLaren, in my opinion, was a remarkable man. And if you ask people, can you remember how Leon McLaren took his handkerchief out of his pocket? And can you remember the way he scratched his head? And lots of little movements. Anybody who knew him for any length of time will tell you exactly how he did it. Because everything he did was remarkable. So when he took his handkerchief out of his pocket, in a room full of a hundred people, a hundred pairs of eyes would be following it in absolute silence. Because he was just himself. You know, this is why babies are looked at all the time. They're not trying to be anybody. You and I are trying to be impressive. And so we're ignored. <laughs> The baby's just itself and everybody's looking and saying, oh, isn't that fantastic? It makes no effort. It's not trying to be nice. Babies don't mind getting sick all over you. They don't mind waking up in the middle of the night ten times. You're afraid to ask for what you want. Because you think you won't be loved. But a child asks for everything, demands everything immediately, and it is loved. So there's a way of asking and still being loved.
There's a way of living with yourself as the center of the world. And the world around you will love you for it. Just being yourself. You know how exhausting dating is? Trying to be somebody else. <laughs> trying to be charming and nice. and Trying to give the illusion that your hair is always brushed. <laughs> that you always smell nice. What a relief when she says, I do. Then <laughs> you can say, well, this is it. Some young lady asked me, I told her that I loved my wife. And she said to me, well, what is it like to love someone? And I said, well, when I'm with Anne, I'm comfortable. That's the way it is. Nobody makes me feel more comfortable. I don't have to perform or anything. That's the way it is. That's what true love is and that's what true life is. Just being yourself. You have a right to be who you are. The way you are. Take any one person out of the script and the story changes. That's why you love your enemies. Everybody adds to the show. If there were no criminals, we would have no lawyers. If there's no ill health, we'd have no doctors. We'd get rid of everybody. Everybody adds to the show. Yes, anybody else? Yes. Well, if I said that, I'm going to wipe it from the recording because you do not go outside of yourself looking for truth. You go looking within. Just as happiness is within you, so is truth. It's all within. Again, I'm just going to take it from the Christian tradition. If the kingdom of heaven is within you, if you just accept that. What is your inner space like that it could actually contain that? It couldn't be a tiny little dark, damp, dusty space. It must be amazing. When you want to discover the truth, or you want to discover happiness, or love, or freedom, you go within. This is the greatness of meditation because it gives you the capacity to go all the way within. No. I'm going to say it in sort of an enigmatic sort of way, but the effort is to stop making efforts. The effort is in letting go. You know when you say to a young child, take that look off your face. They go, like this, and the look is gone. You say it to an adult, and they can't take it off. They think I'm miserable. But you can take it off. You let go every night. How do you go asleep? Going asleep is not an achievement. It's an unachievement. 
you unachieve all your life. You say, good night, dear. Good night, Lindsay, or whoever the name of the sun is. Good night, world. Good night, bank manager. Good night, overdraft. Good night. You give up the ticking of the clock, the dog howling in the distance. You give up everything. And when you give up everything, what happens? There's no more identity. No male ever sleeps. It's not a male who sleeps, or a father, or a businessman who sleeps. All that is left behind. And there's just being. And the marvelous thing is, when you give up everything, what do you discover? You discover tremendous peace and rest. Most people do not have an aversion to sleep. When they wake up in the morning, they don't say, thank God, that's over with. <laughs> right? They think, that is just so good, I'd love more of it. <laughs> and that's when you give up everything. So now you've given up everything, you've slept for five, six, seven, eight hours, whatever it is. You've enjoyed this tremendous rest because you gave up everything. What the intelligent person would do is say, now, that's the secret. When you give up everything, there is tremendous happiness and peace. But what do you spend the whole waking day doing? Accumulating grabbing, grasping, possessing. And then you're burnt out, you know, 11 o'clock that night, and it's, oh, good night, dear. Good night, Lindsay. Good night, bank manager. Night after night, nature tells you that it is in letting go that full rest and peace and happiness arises. Now, you can't sleep all your life. Nature won't allow that. But you can let go during the day. Why would you bother taking insult? Somebody said to you, look, I can give you a bucket of offense. Would you like it? In fact, I could actually do that. <laughs> I could give you all offense now. Why would you take it away? Say you're walking along the street and you see some rubbish on the ground. Don't you walk past? You don't say, oh, rubbish. This is what my pocket's for. <laughs> you know, you don't put it into your pocket. You leave it there because it has no value. So what value has misery got? What value has jealousy got? Envy, greed, gluttony, anxiety, fear. They have no value, none at all. So let them go. Somebody offers you offense and you say, I'm on a diet. I don't eat that anymore. But you know, this amazing thing about offense is we nurse it. Why not practice euthanasia on it? Why would you nurse an offense? Isn't it insane? And then we look into our heart and we say, oh, yes, there, it's still there and still feel bad. It's like digging up granny for the 15th time. See how decayed she's become. Well, that's what we do. We dig up the old offenses and all my regrets and what I should have done and my guilt. If only I'd had a different Irish teacher, I could have been somebody. <laughs> I could have been a contender. Well, don't take any of these things. You know, it's marvelous thing. Every morning, 
we dress. And that's socially acceptable. I encourage that, so keep that up. <laughs> we dress physically, but we also dress emotionally. And why would you do that? Why would you take the fears out of your cupboard and put them into your heart again? And your sense of limitation and all these things. You can do this tonight now if you want to. You can sit at the side of the bed and you can ask yourself, what is useful that is in my heart? And what is useless that is in my heart? And everything that is useless, you can open up the little drawer beside the bed and you can put them in. And you can go to bed only with useful things in your heart. And the next morning when you wake up, don't open the drawer. You only have to do it once. You only have to decide that you will put down that which is useless once and never pick it up again. And then you'll be free. The other way a child stops crying. So magnificent. It weeps with much more venom than you and I can muster. It screams injustice. But the minute it stops, the eyes dry up and the whites of the eyes are white again. You and I look like a rabbit for a fortnight. <laughs> well, that's what living in the now is all about. So you take an insult. Let's say somebody says, you're a twit. Not exactly the worst insult in the world, but anyway, some people say this. You're a twit. It takes about two seconds to say it. But you could keep it in your heart for 20 years. It only lasts two seconds. Let it last two seconds. So if you want to enjoy life, you need to be with the living. You need to be in the now. Maybe one last question. Yes, there's a lady here. None of us have a unique problem. We all have the same problem, and the problem is forgetting. The mind has the capacity to remember, and it has the capacity to forget. And it has forgotten who I am. And having forgotten, it looks around. That's what it does. It looks around to see, well, what do those whom I believe in most and love most, what are they doing? And so ignorance is imitated. But every so often somebody looks and says, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't offer happiness. There must be more to me. Has that question not burnt in your heart? You say, I know there is more. Well, find somebody who exhibits more and ask them questions. That's the real key. When you want to drive a car, and you don't know how to drive a car, you go to a driving instructor. If you want a heart operation and you don't know how to do it, well, even if you did know how to do it, actually, <laughs> you, uh, you go to a, a surgeon. If you want to go to England and you don't know how to fly a plane, well, you get a, a pilot and all of that. 
And we're very, very open to using other people's expertise with regard to all sorts of things. How do you think I should wear my hair? Do you think the grey suit suits me? All sorts of things. We're very, as I said, willing to take advice. But when do we take advice as to what is the purpose of my life? Why take advice on all these issues and not take advice or direction on the fundamental issue? Like, why was I born? And it's obvious that everybody else is born, and they also seem to be human as well, most of them. And it's obvious that there's a universal aspect to me. But there's also a particular aspect. So I have particular qualities. And what is the purpose of those particular qualities? Orange trees are for producing oranges, not bananas. What's the purpose of Shane Mulhall? It's a unique setup. It must have a unique function. The common error is forgetfulness. And you can do it a number of ways. The key is to find somebody who doesn't seem to forget and put your question. Say, how do you remember? Or what is the secret of remembering the truth about myself? The interesting thing is there's no end to the books and the people available. The way it is said is that if you have questions, then those who can answer them will come into your life. That's the way it's organized. If there's ill health, doctors start to appear. If there's criminals, lawyers start to appear. Or maybe it's the lawyers who come first. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not true. So if criminals appear, then you get the lawyers. If you get inquirers, you get sages. Sometimes people think there's a shortage of sages in the world. There's a shortage of inquirers. It's the unhealthy patient who creates the great doctor. Having a little sniffle will not create any great doctor. You need to have you know, the bubonic plague or <laughs> something like this. And if you manage to have that, you present yourself in front of a doctor, that doctor grows to be exceptionally wise. So if you have real questions, you will create a teacher. It's a very interesting thing, that. It is the disciple who creates the teacher. I'll leave you with a mystery. It's the child who creates the mother. We've got it the wrong way around. So, you can ponder on that. Thank you very much. <laughs>